We are in chapter 37, and the story of Joseph starts in chapter 37. What a great story, but it's interrupted by a completely different story in the very next chapter in 38, and then picks up again in 39. Whenever you see something like this in the Bible, it's another literary device. It's not happening by accident. The insertion of the story in chapter 38 is called an intercalation. And I'm not going to really explain it here in this particular intercalation because it's a really, really complex one that goes all the way through like chapter 45 or something. Um, so we're going to, I will explain intercalations in more detail to you when we get to a simpler one. But for now, just know that this insertion of this story is not by accident. And it's done to emphasize points the two stories have in common or sometimes to contrast the points they have in common. In, in this case, it's, it's because there are really deep similarities between what happens to Tamar in chapter 38 and what happens to Joseph uh, in, in his story. So chapter 38 is the story of, as I said, Tamar. She's the daughter-in-law of Judah, who is one of Jacob's 12 sons. So, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of sex in the Bible. And chapter 38 covers some sensitive topics. So if you're uncomfortable with that, you'll want to turn your sound off until you see a slide like this one on the screen that will alert you that we're done with chapter 8 and we're moving on to chapter 37. Now, Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Tamar was married to Ur, the oldest, but it says Ur was wicked, and it says the Lord put him to death. No details, just that the Lord ended his life. Now, in the A&E, when a man died childless and his line ended, it was considered a terrible tragedy. It's like the worst thing that could ever happen to a man. The worst thing you could curse him with would be to sentence him to being wiped out from the world with no descendants. So whenever a man died childless, it was the obligation of his nearest relative, usually his brother, to marry his widow and get her pregnant. And their firstborn child would take the name of and be the legal descendant of, son of, the dead brother, the, the one that died, his dead father. So another social benefit to this was that it also, that having this kind of law made, or custom, it's really a custom, made someone automatically responsible for the care and feeding of the widow. So it's kind of an elegant solution if you don't look at what the widow might want. Um, and, and that, this particular custom is called leveret marriage. Lever in Latin means brother-in-law. In Hebrew, the word is yabum, jabum. Um, and it comes along and is practiced in Israel later. It's, a, it's like a thing. It's a custom they carry through, but I want you to be aware that it did not originate with the Israelites. This is an a, ancient Near East, an A&E custom. So anyway, after Ur died, his brother Onan needed to get Tamar pregnant, but Onan did not want to father a child who would be legally his brother's. So he took advantage of Tamar and slept with her, but it says he made sure to spill his seed on the ground. You can almost hear him mocking her. And it says what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. Back then, 
it was vital to any city state and to any nation to have a strong complement of fighting men. This was, it was even necessary almost at a family level, at a, at a tribe level. It was absolutely necessary in order to survive. And that's why they had such a thing as leveret marriage. The social justification was to honor the dead man. But the hard reality was it was necessary to increase the power of the tribe and to provide for a strong defense. So here, two great wrongs have been done. One is against Tamar by Onan sleeping with her in bad faith. And the other great wrong is done against the entire tribe for failing his duty to father more fighting men. And it says the Lord put him to death for it. People point to this passage as a proof text that masturbation is terribly wicked. It is, in fact, also called Onanism, based on this story. It's kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like Sodom and Sodomy. But the name Onan and Onanism takes the entire passage out of context. Because if you ever read the story, the passage is obviously not about masturbation at all. So although there may be many valid perspectives on whether masturbation is healthy spiritually or not, the fact is you cannot call this passage out in support of any argument on the subject either way. So now two of Judah's three sons have died after being married to Tamar. And Judah's like starting to think of Tamar as maybe a black widow. He's more than a little concerned that if she marries his third son, Shelah, then Shelah will die too. And then he'll be, have no descendants. So he tells Tamar that Shelah is too young and she'll have to wait a few years. Well, many years pass and it becomes apparent to Tamar that Judah will never let her marry Shelah. Her biological clock is ticking. So she comes up with a plan. When she hears that Judah will be traveling to shear his sheep, she dresses up like a prostitute which in that day included being heavily veiled, like in this picture. And she goes and sits by the side of the road where he will surely pass by. Now that may sound a little chancy, but in those days, a sheep shearing was a big multi-day macho celebration. So she's betting that Judah will be in a party mood. And she's right. When Judah spots her, he stops and solicits her for sex. Tamar says, well, how will you pay me? And Judah says, I'll send you a goat. And Tamar says, that'll work, but I need something to guarantee you won't kind of, quote, forget to pay me after you've had your fun. So she asks for his staff and the signature cylinder he's wearing around his neck. A signature cylinder is marked and scored so that when you roll it across clay or wax, it leaves an imprint that serves as your signature. So Judah agrees and the deal is done. They have sex, Judah goes on to the sheep shearing, and Tamar goes back home. Judah does try to send a goat back in payment so that he can get his staff and signature cylinder back. But of course, the prostitute cannot be found. Well, three months later, it becomes obvious that Tamar is pregnant. And as an unmarried and supposedly virtuous widow, she's in big trouble. She's hauled in front of Judah, the head of the family tribe, for judgment. 
he immediately sentences her to death by burning for promiscuity. As they drag her out, she pulls out the staff and signature seal and cries, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. See if you recognize them. Judah is thunderstruck. He's forced to own up to his part in this and says, she is more righteous than I, for I failed to give her Shelah as is her right. And Tamar is spared. And by the way, so is Judah. He suffers no penalty whatsoever. This is another story where there are clearly different rules for women than for men. Pay attention to this sort of ancient cultural bias in the Bible that has become unjustly codified and calcified in our modern churches, in our doctrines, in our homes, and our society. Apparently, applying customs to women thousands of years later in a different cultural setting is fine with some of our major hierarchies and in our particular social world. But I'm here to say they are wrong. These are ancient cultural norms, not decrees made by God. Tamar ends up giving birth to twins, one of whom, Perez, becomes a direct ancestor of Jesus. So 38 is done. Let's go back to chapter 37 and pick up the story of Jacob's 12 sons, the future patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob finally settles near Hebron, somewhat south of Jerusalem. This is his ancestral home near the tree of Mamre, where both Abraham and Isaac lived. And he quite shamelessly continues to play favorites within the family. 17-year-old Joseph is his particular favorite, and Joseph's brothers hate him bitterly for it. Now, Joseph's a little different, maybe a lot different. He's a typical teenager, to be sure, but he's also a tattletale. And we'll find in later chapters, he's prone to tears. He's definitely not your typical macho man. In fact, it says his father Jacob made a, a quote, ornate robe for him, the famous coat of many colors. This was not just any robe. It was special, a particular kind of robe. This type of garment in the Hebrew is mentioned only one other place in scripture, in 2 Samuel 13, 18, where it's described as the type of robe that virgin daughters of a king would wear. Think about that for a second, virgin daughters of a king. As the brilliant theologian and comedian Peterson Toscano observes, Jacob made Joseph a princess dress. Peterson does a marvelous routine in which he views Joseph from the perspective of his uber-macho Uncle Esau. And I'll send you that link. I'll post it. It's well worth watching him talk about Joseph. And it's not just that it's an entertaining and refreshing perspective, but it's an example of how people who are marginalized in the Bible, women and the LGBTQ community, for example, are able to see themselves in the story we need to release our heterosexual, male-centric death grip on scripture. 
we need to understand and appreciate how important it is for all of us to be able to see ourselves in God's love story with us. We should not build fences around the Bible. Here's Joseph, whom we'll see as a hero in the Bible. He's someone to greatly admire, and he wears a princess dress. In fact, we'll see that he rarely takes it off. He loves it. So Joseph has a dream in which he and his brothers are out in the field binding up sheaves of grain, when suddenly Joseph's sheaf stands upright, and his brother's sheaves gather round it and bow down to it. Joseph, being a typical self-centered teen, is so excited about this dream that he like tells his brothers like all about it. <laughs> you can imagine their reaction. They already hate his guts, and this makes them gnash their teeth. Then he has another dream in which the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bow down to him, and he tells everyone about this dream, not just his brothers, but his father too, and his father scolds him for it but stores it in his heart to remember later. The hearts of Joseph's brothers, on the other hand, harden towards him and their hatred festers. Now the brothers have to work their father's flocks. It's hard work and it often takes them far from home. And this time it's taken them to Shechem, nearly 50 miles away. They've been gone a long time. So Jacob sends Joseph, whom he keeps at home, to check on them. Now, at 17, Joseph's old enough to take a 50-mile journey by himself. Turns out, though, they're not at Shechem anymore, but have moved on to Dothan, another five miles or so up north. Joseph finally catches up with them, and his brothers see him coming from a distance. He can't miss that princess dress, and they plot to kill him. The brothers, let's kill him and throw him in this empty cistern and tell Dad the wild animals devoured him. Reuben, no, let's don't kill our own brother. Let's just throw him in the empty cistern. See, Reuben planned to go back later and rescue him. When Joseph arrives and finds this out, he pleads for his life. It doesn't say that in this chapter. It tells us that later. But the brothers are determined. They strip Joseph of his robe and they throw him in the cistern and sit down to eat. Then they see a caravan of Ishmaelites carrying spices to sell in Egypt. Now, at this point, the story starts getting really jumbled up because Judah says, let's don't kill Joseph. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. And I'm like, wait, Reuben, they already agreed not to kill him. That was Reuben's plan. When the Midianite merchants come by, they pull Joseph out of the cistern. Wait, what happened to the Ishmaelites? Sometimes Ishmaelites and Midianites associate with each other. They're both nomadic merchants on the same route, living in the same general area, but they're not the same thing at all. They're two, two completely different groups of people. Next, the brothers sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and the Ishmaelites carry him off to Egypt. Okay, back to the Ishmaelites again. It's so confusing. Reuben returns to the cistern, finds Joseph gone, and tears his clothes in grief and alarm, and then runs to tell his brothers. Oh my gosh, I, when did Reuben leave in the first place? Where did he go? And now that Reuben's back, where did the brothers go? They were sitting there eating dinner. 
Why would this be news to the brothers? They're the ones who sold him. What in the world is going on here? The brothers take Joseph's robe, slaughter a goat, and drag the robe through the blood. They take the bloody robe back to Jacob. Jacob, as they intended, jumps to the conclusion that Joseph has been devoured by wild animals. Can you imagine the guilt he felt at having sent Joseph off on this journey alone? Poor Jacob grieves inconsolably. And the last entry in the story is that the Midianites sell Joseph to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials. Okay, when you have a story that makes no sense and jumps around like this, it's a clue that the editor slash author slash compiler of the story has taken two versions of the same story and tried rather unsuccessfully to blend them together. So when this happens, go back and try to group similar wording, similar people or place names, and key elements together to see if you can parse the two stories out. Here's how it would work for this story. We'll home in on these words, kill, cistern, and robe. And we'll also key off of Ishmaelites versus Midianites and Judah versus Reuben. Don't worry if you don't get these words all written down. They'll be on the following slides. Let's see how the story sorts out if we sort the pieces of it using these words. The first statement, where the brothers plot to kill Jacob and throw him in a cistern, would be the opening statement for both versions of the story. We'll sort everything having to do with Reuben into the right-hand column. And look, Reuben is specifically associated with the word cistern in this sentence. So let's put all the cistern references in the right-hand column too. The bit about Joseph pleading for his life, it could go either place, but Let's put everything about pursuing the killing plot as opposed to the leave him in the cistern plot. Let's put all the killing stuff on the left because Reuben was fighting for not killing him. The robe could also go either place, but since we know they took the robe to Jacob to imply that Joseph had been killed, let's put it on the left where we're grouping all the killing stuff. Here's a cistern bit. It goes on the right. Now we have to make a choice about where to put the Ishmaelites and the Midianites. But later in the story, we saw the Midianites pull Joseph out of the cistern and all the cistern stuff goes on the right. So let's put the Midianites on the right and the Ishmaelites on the left. Judah's got to go on the left because Reuben's on the right and those are definitely two different versions of the story. And look, Judah is associated with the Ishmaelites. So that looks good. Midianites and cisterns definitely goes on the right. And the brothers selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites, Ishmaelites go on the left. Reuben is the next bit. He goes on the right. And look, there's the cistern again associated with Reuben. Cool. Both the robe references, they go on the left. And lastly, the Midianites go on the right. And we're done. So now let's read the individual stories as we've been able to parse them out. The left-hand column reads like this. The brothers, let's kill him and throw him in this empty cistern and tell dad the wild animals devoured him. Joseph pleads for his life. The brothers strip Joseph of his robe. Then they see a caravan of Ishmaelites carrying spices to sell in Egypt. Judah says, let's don't kill Joseph. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. 
So the brothers sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and the Ishmaelites take him to Egypt. The brothers take Joseph's robe, slaughter a goat, and drag the robe through the blood. They take the bloody robe back to Jacob. Jacob sees Joseph's robe and jumps to the conclusion that Joseph has been devoured by wild animals. He grieves inconsolably. That works. Let's see if the right hand column works too. The brothers, let's kill him and throw him in this empty cistern and tell dad the wild animals devoured him. Reuben says, no, let's don't kill our brother. Let's just throw him in the empty cistern because Reuben planned to go back later and rescue him. So the brothers throw Joseph in the cistern and sit down to eat. Then they all apparently go off, leaving Joseph in the cistern. Some Midianite merchants come by, probably hearing, hear Joseph hollering, and they pull him out of the cistern and take him as a slave. When Reuben returns to the cistern, he finds Joseph gone. He tears his clothes and runs to tell his brothers. The Midianites end up selling Joseph to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials. That version of the story totally makes sense, too. It's only when the editor tried to blend them together that the story became disjointed and confusing. This technique is a tool for your backpack. I mentioned it back when we looked at the Noah story, but this story about Joseph was short enough I could actually show you how to do it. It's pretty cool, huh? It's not hard. Usually, you can usually do this. Well, the Lord never takes his eyes off of young Joseph. Potiphar is a wealthy Egyptian official, and Joseph, as it turns out, is a gifted administrator. Who knew, right? His integrity and his talent quickly catch Potiphar's attention, and he gives Joseph more and more responsibility until Joseph ends up running all of Potiphar's household and businesses. It says Potiphar only had to worry about eating what was set in front of him. Unfortunately, Potiphar's wife is not as interested in Joseph's administrative abilities as in his good looks. Joseph is a handsome, attractive young man, and she tries repeatedly to seduce him. But Joseph steadfastly refuses, seeing it as a sin, as it would be, against both Potiphar and God. One day, Joseph is working in the house alone, and Potiphar's wife actually grabs him. Joseph slips out of his coat and runs when... Until she realizes she has his cloak in her hands, she starts screaming her head off and accusing that Hebrew of trying to rape her. When her husband comes home, she tells him the same story, again calling Joseph that Hebrew a pejorative term to the Egyptians. They despise Hebrews. They won't even eat with them. So you can imagine how much pent-up jealousy and resentment there is in the household against Joseph, who's risen to the top. Certainly no one stands up for him. You can see how the slaves in America would have read Joseph's story of sexual harassment and false accusation and seen themselves. Are you seeing a pattern here? How even in a text written by men, for men, in a society ruled by men, the love of God for the downtrodden and the silenced and the abused and the prisoner still shines through. They are brought forward in these stories. They are given agency. They are, at the very least, they are seen. Even if they have no agency, God sees their misery and is always always with them.
God takes action on behalf of these people. Woe be to the man of power who misses this in scripture. Joseph, of course, is immediately thrown in jail where he continues to act with honor and integrity. Gradually, the jail warden gives him more and more responsibility. And as we close today, Joseph, though still a prisoner, has been given authority to run the entire jail. We're gonna go in our breakout sessions, but I want to address Shirley's question that she um, sent me saying, uh, so when you separate stories like we did uh, for the, the uh, story of Joseph and the cistern and the Ishmaelites and the Midianites, when you separate the stories, how do you know which one is true? And that's a great question. And the answer is they're both true because what the author is doing is saying it's not as important what the specific details are of these two versions of the story as it is important that you understand the underlying truths being told in the story. So when you have these conflicting details, pull them out and say, okay, what does this mean? So whether it was the Ishmaelites or the Midianites is not as important as slave. They were slave traders. They were foreigners. Who took him to Egypt is not as important as Joseph was taken to a foreign land against his will. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that's very uh, important in the, the differences in the two stories is the difference between Judah and Reuben. Why Judah and Reuben? We're going to find out later that um, Israel, after it becomes a nation, is going to split in a civil war and, and 10 of the tribes will move north and two of the tribes will stay south. And I mean, they don't move, they just split like that. And Judah is one of the southern tribes and Reuben is one of the northern tribes. What is happening is we are getting this, the story develops differently in the northern tribes and is told and retold with Reuben as the hero. They're not in the northern tribes. They're not going to tell and retell uh, uh, an important historical story using Judah as the hero and vice versa. The tribes in the south are going to tell the story using Judah as the hero, not Reuben. So this is one of the ways we know that the, the person or persons compiling this part of Genesis, Genesis and these first five books were using stories that had developed sometime that had had de been developed for some years after the split of the nation into two pieces. So um, it's it's uh, one of the clues that we have that this that this was not written by um, Moses probably because the split happened well many 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 um, hundreds of years after Moses. Uh, and it's possible, though, that um, Moses wrote things down and that his writings were one of the sources being used to compile the, the book of Genesis, etc. So um, people uh, tell their own truths. They tell their own truths within the wrapping of their culture. And that I know that you're getting the message loud and clear on that. So 
it's time for our breakout sessions. Uh, grab your study guide while I get the session set up. All right. So tell me what you guys talked about. What did you come up with? Well, Woody had some really great things to say. Um, well, we talked a lot about um, whether all the bad things that happen in the world are God's will. And I said my personal viewpoint was that they are not God's will, that good things can come out of bad events. But that doesn't mean that that God had all, had all this planned in advance and you know, used a bad event in order to make a, a future good outcome for the greater good. I, I just don't believe that. Gotcha. We talked about how the ancient viewpoint of God pretty much was that they, that the gods or God or whatever, whoever they believed in controlled every move you made. And that we um, don't see God in that light, that he gives us free will. We decide our own, we make our own decisions on what we're going to do and where we're going to go and such. Um, but God's will is the outcome, what he wants at the other end of it, not necessarily the path that you take to get there. And that He's going to work everything out according to his will, even when we don't um, make the decision that would make him the happiest. I say that right, guys? <laughs> I, would say that, I would say that God's will is always for good. But I agree with you that God is, I don't see God as, the, as a puppet master who's controlling every move that that happens on, on earth and to people. Um, but, but I do believe that God's will is always for good in the long run and the short run. Yeah. We talked about how God, um, the gods would be, if you had problems, it was because the gods were judging you. So uh, what our comment became was God is not judging you. That's not how God works. And that God will be with you through all your difficulties and griefs that, you know, he was with Joseph all the way through everything, and Joseph was not alone, and God saw Joseph. So if you have someone who's grieving, you don't say, well, this is God's will, or you don't say, you know, I've heard, you know, I've been there, I know who you're talking about. You say, I see you, I hear you, I'm with you, and God is with you. And those are things you can say to anybody in any difficulty, and it will be encouraging because you're coming alongside with because the only time Job's friends got in trouble was when they started talking. So the less we say, the better. <laughs> Dale, I had a question for you. With, well, we didn't have an answer to it in our breakout group. And that is, why would, okay, if this robe that Joseph wore was the kind of robe that would only be worn by a virgin princess, why would Jacob make such a robe for Joseph? That's an interesting question. I have no idea. Do you guys have an idea? I've I, wondered about that too, because it almost makes him look sissified or whatever, you know. 
Yes. And he clearly, you know, the way he's portrayed in scripture, if you read, you know, his whole story as an entirety, is he comes across as sissified, you know, he's, if you want to use that word, he, he comes across as being very much more effeminate in his manner than the other um, brothers, than is norm in his culture. Um, however, he's, by contrast, he's like over the top talented and his administrative talents and, you know, his integrity, his character strength, his strength of character are Apparently also he's really good looking too. Yeah. And handsome and good looking. And, and, um, I can, and, you know, when, when he gets to Egypt and he rises to power in Egypt and they're all into, you know, painting the coal on their eyes, I wonder, if, you know, he really got into that. It's just, I can understand how someone who is like that naturally, a, a man who is like that naturally would see himself in this story. You know, uh, we, I don't think types of people have changed. And so is it that Jacob himself understood it? I think that's where the key is because remember back when we were studying Esau and Jacob, Esau was the outdoor doorsy guy and Jacob was the one that stayed in the house and cooked and was the mama's boy. And, you know, I'm wondering if Jacob himself had the same proclivities, if this is how he also presented in the world, you know, and that he made a coat that he would have liked to have had. We don't know. You know, Gail, I, this is the first time, and I've studied this, you know, before, that I, I thought about, even though uh, Joseph was 17, you know, could he be a little bit on the naive side and sheltered? You know, coming from a small town, you don't know it's out there till you move away from a small town. <laughs> yes. You know, you've never been exposed to anything except that, that everyday piddly stuff. And... I think sometimes Joseph was just a little bit on the naive side. A lot of times I've been thinking, oh, he's just uh, selfish, egotistical and all that. But, you know, I kind of looked at it from that viewpoint. Was he naive at a point and had to grow up quickly, maybe when faced with reality? Just I think, for thought. I think that sounds quite plausible, Gladys, and as a, as a much more generous view of him, you know. Right. Uh, he was very young and he clearly had not been let out to go work with his brothers and do all the things that you would think he would by 17. 17 was like marriageable age back then. Right. You'd think he would be tending the sheep. You think he would have more response responsibility. And it's amazing for him to go from no res what appears to be no responsibility to heavy responsibility and doing a good job at it. Yes. And I, and I think that if you think back on Jacob's life, his dad's life, he was recreating his own childhood for Joseph. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This may be, this may come out later in the Bible, but uh, we had a question. Did Joseph ever get married? He did. He, okay. he gets married. Uh, he, as part of his rise to power, he's quote given a wife who is the daughter of a uh, very, very, very important priest in the priestly class. And they have two children who later figure big in the history of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's very... Was, was, his, was his wife um, 
an, an Israelite or was she Egyptian? She was Egyptian. She, her father was a very big deal in the Egyptian priestly hierarchy. So it's, it's you know, thinking about what Gladys said about him being naive. I have a child that is very gifted and things come easily to him, but he's just now almost 40 and figuring out that other people's feelings matter too and trying to understand that not everything comes easily to everybody. And it makes me wonder if Jacob wasn't in that category you where mean Joseph yeah oh Joseph I'm sorry where everything came easy to him and he just didn't understand the challenges others had and their resentments yeah maybe he didn't he, he didn't understand how his brothers would react to his telling the stories about his dreams yeah right. and, I, and I wonder if he was like on Gladys's point, if he was naive, I think we all judge uh, how, expect others to react like we would react in a particular situation. We put ourselves in their place and that's what we expect. And I think Joseph by nature was a more forgiving, loving, um, enthusiastic for the other person kind of person. And I suspect he was truly shocked when he showed up and found out he knew his brothers didn't like him, but I suspect he thought they loved him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It just hit me when, with what Julie was saying and what you said, and I went, oh my gosh, he was autistic. Well, yeah, that was, that's <laughs> what I was just thinking. He was on the spectrum. Yeah, yeah right, right. You know, it's... Okay on administrative things really hyper focused not seeing in other people's feelings yeah super smart <laughs> yeah very interesting and i wonder and you know one of the things that makes that interesting as a potential premise um or a way to understand joseph would be that when he had to do that sudden growing up he did it in two places of isolation um wow you know, I'd like to, to make one more comment uh, that, you know, our group said that God was with Joseph throughout the story. And to me, that's a, I feel like it was a means to an end. His successful story of Joseph had much greater significance because it is the, it's part of the birth of a nation. It's the beginning of the birth of a nation. And I think that God was leading him through that. That's a significant part that we need to remember. Even though we haven't gotten to that, we're going to get to that. Right, right. And I wanted us to begin wrestling with this question of God's will, because it's going to come up a lot as we go through the Old Testament uh, and what, how we uh, begin to think about that question. I just want to um, plant the seed here because um, it's an age-old human question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And where is God in this? It's even got a name. It's called theodicy. This question is the question of theodicy. And it has to do with God justice is, is what that is. is we uh, talked about that a little in our group. And we were talking about those things do happen, you know, not everything good happens to good people. We do have bad things that we have to struggle with. And it's, and 
and good things happen to people who are non-Christian, you know, and non-believers. And it's how you find comfort as a Christian when those bad things happen. And it doesn't always come immediately. Sometimes it takes some time. Sometimes you've got to wrestle with your relationship with God and get through it. But that doesn't mean he's not there for you. Yeah, and and what I wanted you guys to begin to wrestle with um, was the really fundamental question that that Woody kind of kicked us off with, which is, does is it God's will that bad things happen so that good things can later happen? And I want to really home in on that question because I want to offer to you another way to look at this. I think that we as humans tend to look at the end goal and we tend to view, quote, God's will as what will happen in the end, that God is on a path to get us from point A to point B. And my offering to you is that for God, the end never justifies the means. That God is not about an end goal at all. That God is about how we walk together. And that what matters is not what is happening to us as much as it is how we're responding to it and how we're reaching out to God in it and how we're understanding that God loves us, that we're wrapped in love, we are enveloped in love now as much as we will be in the end. The only difference is going to be that in the end, evil will not be wrapped up in here with us, you know? But we have access to that end love, to that state of love, to the relationship of love, and to the power of love now. And that's what God is about. It's not about what happens. So the end for us can never, ever be used to justify the means. We are a people who have that upside down. We're about the how, not the what. And so I want to leave that with you as a thought as we close class today. Um, it's a discussion that, that will go on forever, uh, but I hope that you think about it, ponder it over the next week, and I'll see you next Thursday. I've got a question, uh, Gail, and that is about the um, intercalation. Yeah. I, it, it just occurred to me that Judah, um, and the way he expressed his sexuality was very different than the way Joseph expressed his sexuality. I would think that if Judah was in the same position where he had a woman who was trying to seduce him, that he would not resist, that he would just naturally go and express his uh, sexual urges. 
um, because he didn't really show a whole lot of restraint in his life. I mean, I understand the reason that, that there was a need for a, a prostitute in the temples or whatever, but that must have been a concession for some people who really had a pr- trouble with their sexual urges. Well, men, I'm speaking about. Um, or maybe women. Maybe that's the reason why they chose to be um, t- uh, you know, prostitutes at the temple. I don't know. Um, but I just thought it was really interesting when you talked about how you have this story that's in the middle. It really shows a difference in their attitude towards sexual expression. Yes, and that's exactly the kind of thing you want to begin picking out of an intercalation, uh, is picking out what things are the same in the story but have different reactions. Or, you know, and and if you want to take a, a stab at that intercalation, you'll want to look from chapter 37 through chapter 45 for the pieces to find all the different pieces um, that the story addresses. It's, and it, it um, doesn't, an intercalation typically doesn't end up with a point like a chiasm does. You know how a chiasm comes to a point, here's the point, <laughs> you know? An intercalation doesn't. An intercalation is more of a food for thought, comparing contrast, deepening of an emphasis of the story. Can you spell that? I N T E R. I-N-T-E-R. C-A-L-A-T-I-O-N. Okay. And there's a, if you take my mark class, you'll find there's an alternative spelling. If you want to write it down. O-R-E-O. Oreo? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right, so you said it was chapter 37 through, what was the other chapter? 45. 45, thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. You started with the O on one. Oh. <laughs> yes, so you'll have, a, you'll have a, a middle story with the other story on it's, both it's sides. It's the cream in the middle and the yep. yeah, cookies on the side. Yeah, got yep. it. <laughs> Lumar knows all about this. All right. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you later. Everybody. Bye. Bye. Love you, Todd. See you next week. Bye.